Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so happy to have Tiffany Westrich Robertson today on the Arthritis Life Podcast. Welcome. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Can you just give a really quick um, intro to the audience? You know, who, what, who you are, where you live and what kind of arthritis you live with? Sure. I'm well, you're right. I said my name and I am tuning in from St. Louis, Missouri. And um, that, that's a right in the middle of the United States. And my current diagnosis <laughs> is um, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. So as we, we talk a little bit about the journey, we'll reveal what I mean by that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I thought that, you know, understanding the difference between rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis was difficult for some people, but learning the differences between the different spondyloarthropathies is like a whole new ball game. So yeah. Can you tell the audience about your diagnosis story slash journey slash saga. <laughs> yes. I can. Um, I'm going to use a term. I don't think that's too unfamiliar with the audience, the mystery patient. Um, that was, that was my label for a good two years. So I started um, having onset symptoms in 2007. So I was in my, I was in my mid thirties, mid to late thirties. And I uh, started with a chest pain, which was, a, you know, I thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> so what's the ER? They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, but it was paired with this, this really massive fatigue and low-grade fever. And it was flaring, which of course didn't know what that meant. It was coming and going, coming and going. And, um, and then it stopped after a few months. Uh, and then all of a sudden the exact same pain happened in my foot. And I couldn't put my shoe on. And then it was like the whole left side of my body. Every few weeks, another area. And I know it went up into my finger and it was my middle finger. And I would joke and say, well, that's appropriate. <laughs> so, because nobody could figure out what this was. The primary doctor could, they, they, um, they sent me to a rheumatologist and that first, I'm going to say first rheumatologist. And she looked at me and basically said, your labs are perfect. So your blood work looks great. There's nothing I can see wrong with you because I, I was very thin and in shape. I was an athlete. So you couldn't see the swelling, even though I knew I couldn't put my shoe on correctly at certain points. But she said, I don't see anything. Your labs all look great. And then she took x-rays of like 30 locations. She's like, well, I don't see anything on the x-rays, which we now know you wouldn't because you don't see any radiographic change um, at onset, unless you're really severe and been living with this for a long time without <laughs> going in, right? So um, she diagnosed me with undifferentiated connective tissue disease and said, it can't be rheumatoid arthritis because it's all your left side. And that's typical of spondyloarthritis. It can't be ankylosing spondylitis because you don't have the HLA-B27 gene. You're a female at the time. It was thought to be a male dominated disease. Um, and I just, the other diagnostic criteria, even though it was really concentrated a lot in my tailbone and my core, you mentioned my chest. And, um, and that was because back then there was no such thing as my current diagnosis. So non-radiographic non came about around 2013. So, um, and, and I, can, I can talk about that a little bit later if, you, if you'd like, but um, essentially, she said, there's, I can't figure it out. I'm not going to put you on medication, not even methotrexate, which is appropriate for undifferentiated connective tissue disease. 
because I want to watch you get worse so I can figure out what this is going to end up to be. And again, me not at the time being knowledgeable like I am today, I know now that a certain percentage of undifferentiated connective tissue disease cases never progress to full-blown disease. So at that time, you know, again, hindsight 2020 and, and not knowing as a patient, I should have been put on something. And, you know, would, so I wasn't, and six months, eight months go by and boy, did I progress. I ended up it mirrored to the other side. I had, I, I, and I still have the chart today. What I, because I was recording myself, and it's like 24 different locations throughout my body. Um, it ended up, I started having such bad fatigue. I was sleeping for about 16 hours a day. And anyone who knows me knows I am like high energy, high, just like an energy magnet, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so that was just not me. And then also I, I just felt so lethargic. I was running a temperature for about three weeks straight and I went to the primary doctors. Something's wrong. I think I have an infection in my ear because my whole side of my face hurt. He looked in it, he touched it. I actually grabbed his chest because <laughs> I was so, so I, I wasn't on purpose. I grabbed him and I'm like, I'm sorry that hurt so bad. And he, he said, that's inflammation in your jaw. Oh I'm gosh. sending you to a new rheumatologist. So on an emergency basis. So he sent me to another doctor who was one of one of the top in the country. And this guy, uh, can I say his name? <laughs> yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, Dr. Orrin Trum. So shout out to Dr. Trum. This is when I lived in California in Los Angeles. And um, he graciously took me in an appointment within a week, which is very unheard of. As a, as a first appointment. And before I left that office, he said, even if the blood work and everything doesn't come back, I know you have something autoimmune arthritis related, and I'm going to start you on methotrexate. And I want you back in a week. And I got to say within two days, my fever broke. I was sleeping back to normal. Um, my energy was, was back. Was I, was I hundred percent? No, but it was obvious that it was working. And, and that's when he said, I'm going to diagnose you with seronegative, essentially um, rheumatoid arthritis, seronegative, meaning my blood work was normal. Mm -hmm. And um, again, could, he tested me for ankylosing spondylitis again, but I didn't meet the criteria. So we went with RA and that's my diagnosis story. <laughs> Wow. Wow. There's so much to unpack there, but I'm really glad you got referred for that second opinion. Um, and then, so to continue to how you have non-radiographic, um, spond, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. So I'll have you say it. So how did it, yeah. Non-radiographic XPA. That works XPA. too. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know there's so many acronyms. I get confused myself, but so how did it get changed over time from seronegative rheumatoid arthritis to what it is today? Right. Well, this has to do a lot with being an educated patient. It has a lot to do because, well, it, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> so, um, uh, we'll go into a little bit more, but when I was going through that mystery patient, I was working as a vice president at, a, at an architectural firm in business development, marketing, project management. I was college teacher for 10 years and um, really on the go. This is what, you know, and I, I was so tired and I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to have to give up a career? So all of this was going through my head. I got to do something. If nothing else, nobody should wait two years to go through this. So I, I created like an a, awareness movement with a bracelet. It was called the buckle me up movement uh, for people a long, long time ago may have, may have heard of it. And it was also the time of, of Facebook and social media. So people started ordering it and, and then we realized a need for an organization, which I'll go into a little bit later. Um, but because of that, in talking to so many people and creating the organization, started becoming very knowledgeable and things that I didn't know to look for in the past. So I, our organization, International Foundation for Autoimmune, Autoinflammatory Arthritis, 
AI arthritis for short. <laughs> it's a lot easier than saying that that whole that whole long long name. We we became friends with organizations all over the world, including Spondylitis Association of America and international. Now it's it's Axial Spondyloarthritis Society in UK, etc. And so I'm talking to them, and I every time I'm hearing their stories or sharing patient stories on spondyloarthritis. <laughs> that's me. That's what I'm living with. And I was just so determined to understand this. Well, then in about, let's say, so it was 2009 when I got diagnosed, I was eventually put on a biologic. Not at first. Um, it took me a while. It was a healthcare. Uh, we had a different health system in the United States back then where pre-existing conditions couldn't get medications. Yeah, I was in that that frame. So I ended up not being able to get on biologics immediately until I joined a clinical trial. Anyway, um, the one that I was prescribed is indicated, or that means it went through clinical trials and tested and approved for a disease. So it was indicated for rheumatoid arthritis, but nothing else. And it did pretty good for a couple of years. Well, then I guess it was late 2012, early 2013, and I started getting so much pain in my spine, my low, my low back. I kept, at first I thought, which I think a lot of us go through was I blamed it on my bed. My mattress must be old. It must be my pillow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and then I started realizing though, this isn't right. I, I couldn't get out of bed. There were times that I was so stiff. I thought if I even move a half of an inch, my spine is going to shatter. It felt that that rigid that's the stiffness part of inflammatory arthritis that that's one of the differentiation and that's when i knew okay this is arthritis related and um it got to the point where i couldn't stand more than five or ten minutes i had to carry a bar stool around with me around the house i was hunched over on my tippy toes i got stuck outside walking the dog because my pelvis locked and i was just like oh my gosh i can't move (laughs) Oh, no. and, and so I just basically demanded a different, um, a different view. So I had, at the time I, I traveled back, I'm from St. Louis, lived in LA for over a decade on my way back. I, I made a pit stop for a year and a half in Phoenix. So at this time I'm in Phoenix and the rheumatologist was one of those offices where you don't actually get to see the rheumatologist. It's a, it's a um, physician assistant. Like you see the rheumatologist and then I'll, when you come back for other visits, you like, I didn't like that. Let's just put it that way. I really prefer to see the doctor. Well, they, they decided to sort of start clean, start all over, same thing. I didn't test positive for ankylosis and I could have told them that. My gene isn't going to suddenly appear now where I didn't have the gene before. Um, but I went through all the tests and I went back to get the analysis. And uh, mind you, barely can sit straight while I'm sitting in there. And that's the physician assistant. The doctor did not come in on that visit. And she reads all my radiographics. She says the same thing. You don't have the gene. You're not male, you, your radio, your x-rays all look great. And, and I'm sitting here going, here it goes again. Here, here we go. No one's going to listen to me. And here, and she said, so I'm going to go ahead and just re keep your diagnosis of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and keep you on the same treatment. And I, well, (laughs) I'm trying to make, I did not accept that answer. Let's, let's put it nicely that way. Um, I, I, I basically just said, look, I have so much knowledge on spondyloarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis now. I am positive that it's something in the spondyloarthritis. I, I don't know what it is, but you cannot keep me on the same medication because I can't walk. And that medication mm-hmm. is indicated only for rheumatoid arthritis. At least I need to be on something that's indicated for ankylosing spondylitis. And let's just see if, if it if it helps. So um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't let I wouldn't stop until she brought the doctor in. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. he came in and he examined me. And thank goodness I pressed because this was now 2013. And he said, Oh you're a classic case of non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. I just heard about it at ULAR conference. And you, 
And ULAR stands for European League Against Rheumatism. Well, it used to. It used to. their name. And now, and yeah. I always, I can't, I'm having trouble remembering it. I, I always have to pull it up when I say it, but they recently oh. changed their name. It's and European it's, Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology it's now. It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard to, to, to change it. But oh, just wow. because they, it's the, 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 the um, new criteria started Europe. And so they heard about it there. That's why they, it wasn't prominent in at the, the AACR, American College of Rheumatology, in, in, the, in the 2012 sessions. So, and I hadn't heard about it because I was really following Spondy, uh, uh, SAA or the Spondylitis Association of America. And again, it hadn't made it really to America. So I hadn't even heard about it. And it was, and, and then I thought, I'm textbook. I'm not textbook anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and just a couple little factoids. I know, you know, these, but just for the audience to know that the gene we're talking about the HLA B27 gene, it's one of those ones where nine out of 10 people with ankylosing spondylitis have the gene, but also eight in every hundred people in the population has the gene, but most don't have AS. So it doesn't mean for sure that you don't have it just because you don't have that gene. Correct. Also, more recently, and I remember this is 2013, so when I, and we all can relate to this with COVID. Anytime something's new, it takes a while to figure things out. So they didn't know this until a few years ago that the majority of non-radiographic spondy patients do not have the HLA B27 gene which differentiates us in that our disease may never progress to radiographic damage, which now is the kind of midline on if you're, you're going to be diagnosed non-radiographic or axial spondyloarthritis, which is the newer name for ankylosing spondylitis. I know it's all very, very yeah. confusing, but um, so that's kind of the middle line. And, that, and now they're finding, and more are female, than male. So yep. all of the things that I didn't tick the boxes, now it's textbook. Yes. And for everyone listening, I'm going to put links in the show notes to learn more about this. Cause it is the kind of thing for me, at least when I see it listed out visually, it's a lot easier to, to understand. But when we say non-radiographic means it's not showing up, you know, on, on imaging, right? And then axial is spine, right? And then spondyloarthritis. Well, arthritis is inflammation in the joint. Itis is inflammation. Arthro is joint. And then I always forget what the spondy stands for. Oh, I should know that by heart. Um, oh, sorry. No. Oh, it means spine. It just means spine, apparently. Oh, so... I feel like it's well, you know why I feel like it's broader because there's been a lot of this is just there's there's been a lot of talk now for in the rheumatology specific, not patient community, but like at ACR, I was in the working group again, American College of Rheumatology. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the working group at the at the conference where the doctors were sort of like picking apart spondyloarthritis, saying, "Well, mm -hmm. it's not really matching." scientifically to the full disease. And I went, Oh no, please don't, <laughs> please don't do another change. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, and that's why it's not with a spondy. There was something about it that I, I don't know that they were, they were challenging it anyway. No, it's, it's hard to keep up with all the changes. And it's, I think one thing that a lot of us have, have gone through is that experience of being misdiagnosed or a separate category of being set told prior to any diagnosis, actually, you're not sick. You're just anxious. You're faking. I was accused of that as a young, skinny woman who was also very physically fit. You're fine. You're just anxious. You know, meanwhile, I had lost 20 pounds of muscle, which I found out later is rheumatoid cachexia, which is like severe muscle wasting, which can happen with uncontrolled rheumatoid arthritis activity. But anyway, so a lot of times we can feel very defensive and there's a lot of trauma when you've had, when you've been like medically gaslit, but we also like, 
now that I've 19 years into this and I kind of understand things more from a provider point of view too, as an occupational therapist, we have to also recognize that these diseases are extremely complex and notoriously difficult to diagnose in the first place. So yes. <sighs> um, one of the, th what you said about the anxious, they told me I clearly injured myself in the gym. That, that, that you just forgot. You just must've forgotten I, how you injured yourself. That's what I said. I, I, I kind of chuckled and I said, and I forgot. <laughs> well, you know, okay. I will say, cause those of you who've listened to all the episodes have heard me refer to my injured, my sprained finger. So, cause I had every single, um, extra articular symptom of rheumatoid arthritis, all of the systemic non-joint symptoms, but I only had one joint that hurt, which is very unusual. Um, initially for the first two years that I was looking for relief. And then I woke up one morning and all of them flared up, but, um, but I had this sprained finger that wouldn't go away. And I literally did think to myself, I must've fallen on this at, at soccer practice. And just maybe it's the kind of thing like where it didn't hurt initially and then it swelled up and it hurt, but you know, I'm like, I've never had a swollen finger that lasted like a year, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't get too many new, new areas anymore. You know, there's that journey, um, when you're diagnosed to whatever you get under your treatment control or your therapeutic control, whatever that mix may be for you and where it doesn't progress, where you're not getting the new pop-ups, but I tell you every time in those 24 or now, you know, they, they expand or 30 or however many places it, I always get tricked. Well, maybe I hit my foot. Maybe I, I do, you know, yeah. I, I, again, I haven't had a new onset for quite a while, but it does still, it messes with you. <laughs> well, and it's hard because our behaviors can trigger flare-ups too. Like I know for me, overactivity or underactivity can both trigger my rheumatoid arthritis. But I will say in my 19 years having rheumatoid, I've never had back pain or stiffness. Um, so, you know, the fact that you were dealing with so much stiffness and, and that doesn't mean, again, that's one, that's one case study, but it's not typical for rheumatoid arthritis to have the severity of back pain that you're talking about. So I'm so glad that you got your diagnosis and it. And one thing that I think is, I mean, you have so, you have so many amazing stories from your many years being an advocate and being, you know, the president of, of AI arthritis, but I know that you were personally part of the efforts to give non-radiographic axillus spondyloarthritis its own disease code in 2020. Can you tell me a little more about that? So um, the first biologic was approved, went through clinical trials and was approved for, in, for, for treating non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Well, it was in the trials in 2013, and that's when I was diagnosed. So my room at that rheumatologist said, well, I'm going to test this theory. There is one drug that is currently in like phase four trials or phase three. It was phase three, regardless, was in, in clinical trials right now for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. I'm going to prescribe you that. If something happens, you're feeling better, we're on to something, sort of like the first rheumatologist that was said, which a lot of times the rheumatologist, that's how they you know, have to, it's kind of a guessing game. And again, within a month, it, it was, I, up until more recently when that ended up failing and I had to go to actually the second treatment that's indicated for non-radiographic XL, which I'm now on, um, I never had that situation with waking up with the spine and the walking with hunched over. So clearly, clearly it was working. Well, um, that pharmaceutical company uh, was the, the group that, that had filed, did all the research to say this justifies to have its own code because, you know, we have clinical trials in it. There are now medications and I as a person who saw this drug do miracles for me, not saying it wouldn't for somebody with ankylosing or axial, the radiographic version, I and our organization are so invested in precision medicine, which is matching, you know, we can get into a little bit more about what that is, but generally to match the right treatment with the right patient at the right time based on our individual needs and presentation. So as a person with that is my diagnosis, 
And the difference of non-radiographic, it's all in the same spectrum of spondyloarthritis. So will I ever advance to the radiographic? Maybe. So the, the radiographic are never going to go back, right? We can only <laughs> go forward. And yes, the same treatment may, may do both. But as a person who is identifying with this gradation on a spectrum of a disease, and knowing there's a treatment that's been clinically tested and worked on me, I felt passionate about making sure that there was a code. But the other reason has to do with identity. And I finally got a name <laughs> to my diagnosis. And now so people important. are telling me, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's non-radiograph. It's still axial spondyloarthritis. Well, if you're thinking about precision medicine, which um, there's a pers personalized medicine is think about, go to the doctor, what are my likes? What are my preferences? Um, holistic exercise, diet. I prefer pill form versus an, an injection. All of it is personalized, personalized to your care. Precision medicine is science-based. We're talking about um, blood work, talking about genetics. There are, there are specific blood specimens and, and th that type of thing. So if like you hear um, going over your blood tests and I'm, you know, positive, my inflammation markers are positive. Those are all biomarkers and research can, is starting to show how some patients may have worse progression if they have elevated biomarkers, blood markers. Um, and, and then how is that affecting the way we respond to treatments. And our organization has done a lot of projects in this space. Knowing that and wanting an identification, I was not willing to let this slide and just say it's okay that we don't have our we don't have our own code because in precision medicine, if we never, if some of us never go to the other spectrum, we need to know why and what treatments may work best for us. And maybe there's more powerful ones that need to work for those who move forward, our combination therapy. So thinking of the bigger picture of the needs of the community, I just, I, I, I had to do something. So I wrote several uh, personal letters under the AI arthritis umbrella, I mean, on our, on our letterhead, but I explained all of the stories I was telling you of my, my experience. And also went into identification and the importance that a patient has a name to their to their disease and the degree of severity of their disease. It's important for us if we're going to be on treatment journeys to know, how, you know where we are in that spectrum. And then um, we kept getting pushed back. The meeting kept getting, oh, somebody else made the docket. Somebody else made. So I had booked tickets. I was ready to go and testify. And it got pushed back twice. Wait, then, wh where was the meeting? Who was the meeting with? Um, the CDC. Okay. Uh, so, and they, they do, it's like a hearing and the pharmaceutical company who does all of the research, the clinical data, they, they present, and then they have other testimonies. So Spondylitis Association of America was also going, um, uh, and, and we were going for the, for kind of the patient perspective. Um, but after we got pushed back twice, <laughs> I developed a social media campaign where I had post, I created posters and a hashtag um, for um, code for NR Expo. And I tagged the CDC in every post and, and encouraged patients that had this diagnosis to weigh in. So they were getting bombarded, not only from the letter, but from social media with the importance of this. So it was sort of creating this army of patients to have a voice around it. So it's not just the two organizations, you know, and in my personal efforts with the letters, but opening the door so that all people who want to be at that meeting essentially can be there. And then COVID happened and we didn't even, all of a sudden I get this notification that they had to expedite things because of COVID, they had obviously CDC, they had to move, they had a lot to do and they pushed through some of the, without having an in-person meeting. And that was one of them. Wow. And then I was like, one day there it was, we had a code. 
And that, so that was 2020. Wow. So even though the term like your doctor in 2013 said you have non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, that wasn't actually a code that they could use right. in the visit. Oh, fascinating. And, and as you probably, as I know, you know, Cheryl, but I think it's important for the audience to understand the importance of coding in a very general um, term here, especially United States. Uh, it, it's a little different in your healthcare system, depending on where you live in the world. But in the United, you know, if we're just talking about the United States, if your doctor matches you with a, with a prescription and it's not indicated, like they can't, if they, it's not indicated for your disease, then you may not get access to it. That was a whole point of why I pushed as well. I knew this because when I had, when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and it was on my, they couldn't give me one that was, that was indicated for spondyloarthritis unless it also had RA under the umbrella because my diagnosis said rheumatoid arthritis. The insurance yeah. company would not authorize a, a biologic that was not indicated. So right. the one that I was on, um, that I was given to that was in clinical trials, um, was not indicated for RA. So they couldn't just, you know, it, it was just a, it was a mess. And, and that was another big, big moment where I thought it's really important to know what you have, to have the right diagnosis and not, it's not okay. In my opinion, for, for patients to like, for me to have to go back to say, I have rheumatoid arthritis just to get a prescription. No, no. Like, that's not okay for me because that's in my medical record. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know? no. And that's so important for people to know. Yeah. So the diagnosis code, what you get diagnosed with that, that has to just again, to reiterate that has to match what the prescription that you're put on is indicated for, for the insurance to cover it. But that still doesn't mean they're going to cover it. Of course. But <laughs> Of course. And then, and then it gets really complex as far as, you know, some, as we've evolved again, everything evolves. So, um, now I, I believe like, even if, if, um, I, I have to ask actually, if I was, if they just put axial spondyloarthritis instead of ankylosing spondylitis or like that umbrella term, I believe regardless of which one you could get the medication. I, I don't yeah. quote me on that, but that's something I think um, I want to, I want to look into a little bit, a little bit more, but part of what insurance does is they also can prescribe something that has proven um, to be beneficial in similar diseases. That's like diseases that don't have approved biologics. They kind of borrow from, you know, mm -hmm. other, other similar diseases, but we, we could go in a whole new show. I know, <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been procrastinating on doing one. Cause I, I always ask people, you know, let me know any topics you want me to cover. Like I want it to, you know, the podcast to cover things that people are interested in. And one of them is just, and I have it listed on my master list. It's just demystifying insurance for biologics. And I'm like, I have to like get that's all my strength. That, to yeah, do that might be a three-part show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a lot, but, but I want to go back to precision medicine. Cause this is such a exciting development and I'll just weave maybe a tiny bit of my personal story in to help kind of contrast. So when I was diagnosed in 2003 with rheumatoid arthritis, seropositive, um, there, as to my memory, unfortunately, I didn't keep all my medical records. That's note to everyone else. Do keep all your medical records. Um, my memory and my mom's too, is that we were told there were three biologic medicines. I believe they were the TNF inhibitors, Enbrel, Remicade, and Humira. And I don't remember why, but we started on um, immediately on methotrexate. I know why, because that's the gold standard that you start on. But then um, I don't know why we chose Enbrel versus the other ones, but we did choose Enbrel. And back then I was a little bit lucky in that I was early enough to where there wasn't this fail first thing. It was like, I just got approval to get on Enbrel right away. And so again, those were the olden days, but the, the, the not good thing about the olden days was that, um, we didn't have any data to know, you know, Cheryl is, you know, 21 years old. She has these characteristics, like 
this Enbril may work better for her than Humira or Remicade. It was a, like you said earlier, the phrase, it's a guessing game, right? But now flash forward 19 years, there's been so much more data to where we can say, like you, you know, science-based, okay, this is Cheryl's blood markers, genetic markers. These are the past drugs she's responded well to and not well to. This is all her different, you know, inflammation markers. X medicine is going to be more likely to work for her than others. Is that a good summary of what? That is med- a great summary. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we covered it, it now. That is a great summary. Um, you know, the, the thing about precision medicine and why uh, our organization became so highly vested in it uh, has a lot to do with what you just said. And what I said, I don't know, we don't always know what's going to work best. Even the older ones, even the ones that have been true, tried and tested, most clinical trials here, here's, here's sort of the, the rub. <laughs> most clinical trials, when they recruit patients, they're recruiting what they consider a general patient population. So you look at the inclusion criteria. And if you, some of them have very stringent, they'll say you must have elevated blood markers to this level, big one. You must not have any comorbidities. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, if I you don't have know a Sjogren the, syndrome. I think I know problem. one person. I know one person who has no comorbidities. Well, you know, it, it's right. So there's those things. Um, there's a, it's very stringent to get into those and what they're, they, they need a certain amount of number, a large number in order to show that this is at the numbers that we're getting, the, the percentages of, of efficacy that this is working um, in the trial and it's safe and it's effective. That, you know, that's, that's what they're testing for. Well, what happens is those drugs get out onto the market and then they have about a 30 to 40% rate of if they work that's why like you uh, Cheryl Embril worked great for you I tried it nothing Mm. nothing and it is indicated for many many diseases right I mean nothing (laughs) and so we went off that three months I was like I can't take it anymore um and, and again it's just why 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 did it not work in me and um and so we, in 2015 for the organization, that was our, our big year. We start, we based on a conversation. Our mission is to help other people living with these diseases, these autoimmune or autoinflammatory, both two sides of the immune system. That's the difference between autoimmune, autoinflammatory, um, innate or learned side of your immune system. And um, so this auto plus the inflammatory arthritis. So help people like us to have a voice as equals next to other stakeholders. So whoever has a stake in your healthcare um, to solve problems that we as people living with the diseases have identified that if we just did this, maybe there would be change. So it kind of get that patient rehabbing the aha moment. And, and from there, we get everyone together as equals and then we solve problems and they impact education, advocacy, and research. Well, in 2015, we said, well, if we're gonna really do this, we need to create, you know, do some research, find out what the problems are, what, you know, what's important to all different perspectives. And what kept coming back is, why doesn't my prescription work? Why does, why does it work for Cheryl? Why doesn't it work for Tiffany? And, and we started realizing this huge need, if we're really going to do treatments for all people, that we need to consider these, what we were calling typical atypicals or subgroups. Um, and how, you know, the, the big question, how do you get to the subgroups? Well, it's, you know, we're working on it. We're taking time. Shout out to Forward Data Bank for formerly National uh, Data Bank of Rheumatic Diseases, because they have developed an AI arthritis data bank to help us create those subgroups that lives in their, in their servers. Um, in saying that, we also, at the same time, we started recognizing this need. We did an ethics of step therapy, which is what you were talking about, Cheryl, with the right. um, fail first, where an insurance company is going to say, well, that's great. You can be prescribed that, but that biologic, but we have the data that says this drug needs to come first and you fail that, and then you can do or fail two things or three, whatever that is. Right. And we went and did an investigation with bioethicists and, and said, okay, is it ethical 
to prescribe based on cost. And what ended up happening was I had this aha moment that when I used to do clinical trials, I couldn't get in them because of the inclusion criteria it was too stringent. So I was not a general patient population, yet the insurance company is basing, you have to take this largely on clinical trials that I couldn't be in. <laughs> yes, you have hit the nail on the head. There you yeah. go. It was like a huge aha breakthrough moment. So then it was like, I should, I should share it with you. I have this huge, it was a huge wall, like an FBI wall. And I, and cause that's what I, that's my specialty. I solve problems and connect the dots. And that's where I hold organizations based on problem solving. And I'm like red lines and whatever. And it was like this, this domino. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I couldn't be in them, but the general patient population, that's the, the research. I mean, the, the efficacy and safety doesn't include me. Then when that happens, also the doctor is ethically obligated to treat to the individual characteristic of a patient. And in those cases where you're atypical, it should default to the onus of the doctor to treat to the ethical obligation of the individual. So we wrote right. the paper. I, I'll, I'll be happy to, to share it. And it was yes. that moment, that paper plus the atypical, where we realized the future of our community is in precision medicine because we have an opportunity to look at what's working, what's not, is not in a postmark post, like um, watching us now. So it's called post-market surveillance, doing research to find out a little bit more about what's, what's working, what's not working, and then using that data, hopefully, to influence our access to treatments. Because if we can show, well, so-and-so, their, their doctor believes they didn't meet this inclusion criteria, so in essence, you know, over, overriding, if you will, um, we, we felt that that was, that was a, big, um, a big step towards it. So since then, we have invested, invested in, um, you talked about in, in a pre-interview, shared decision-making. We, we invested in starting a project called Preparing Patients for Precision Medicine, and then a kind of a side note in clinical trials. Recognizing the general patient population, me, other people who couldn't be in a clinical trial, there are going to be a new wave of clinical trials for precision medicine, and they're starting to be underway. We just saw research being presented really this year at, at both UR and ACR conferences uh, where they're really getting into precision medicine and testing those subgroups and, and subpopulations. So, so we had um, decided, great, the research is being done. The the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, and the EMA, European Medicines Agency, the ones that review the clinical trials and set forth procedures, they're working on a new model so that maybe I could be in a trial. Maybe somebody else who never could be in a trial could be in a trial because we're testing these, these medications now for the atypicals. Yeah. But who's teaching the patients? So we started this program to educate on current trials, future trials, and um, basically preparing patients who want to be in these future trials because you're needed, you're going to be needed so that we have that data that we can go back, mm -hmm. right. And say, okay, well, we weren't general population, but we were atypical and we, this worked for us. So we're on the way. Oh, that's so exciting. And just as a reminder, every time that Tiffany says, you know, her organization it's referring to the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, shortened to AI arthritis. Yes. But um, yeah, and I think, you know, just from my um, understanding from attending the ACR, American College of Rheumatology Conference this year, it, it can even work, you know, precision medicine can apply even to some of the older medications like methotrexate. I went to a talk that was about the, let me say this correctly, the speed at which people metabolize methotrexate relates directly to the severity of the side effects. And so I've always been like, why, you know, why is it that I don't, I, I get nausea every other medicine that says nausea as a possible side effect, I will get nausea, but not methotrexate. Like that's my one lucky thing because methotrexate, the most common side effect is nausea, but they, they figured out that people who metabolize it, of course, I can't remember throughout my head, whether it was 
I think it was the slower metabolizers are less likely to get nauseous because the people metabolizing it quickly, they have more of it, you know, and it's like things like that. And then, okay, so then how can we determine someone's metabolism, you know, so to where you can say, you know what, we can see that you're, you're the type you fit in this category of patients that metabolizes it quickly. Therefore maybe take, I'm going to give you Zofran, like an anti-nausea med or, you know, that ability to really give, like you said, the right patient, the right treatment at the right time. It's really exciting. Absolutely. And historically, you know, this has been, this has really been in the forefront in the cancer community and, and, and there is even legislation and, you know, laws and policies that are related to access to genetic testing. They think, you know, biomarker testing, things that might lead you to a more precise treatment. Well, we've joined um, the one and only coalition for, they say personalized medicine, but it really is precision medicine. And um, we're the only arthritis as of to date, which is 2000, at this time is 2022 in in early year. Um, Because even though they don't talk about anything in our diseases yet, we know that it's going that way, right? So getting versed on what is being accepted in another community in precision medicine is going to be important. And, it, you know, hopefully translating those issues also to the patient community, those of you who are interested in utilizing your voice and your experiences and your stories to influence laws and which are access to, to your treatments. And, and man, I'd love to be able to be go into the doctor's office and have that covered genetic testing and in all of this to be able to say you could possibly do better on this this medication because then what we better quality of life higher percentage of you know chances for remission all all of that good stuff <laughs> yeah i think you know every rheumatologist going into the field is is doing it because they hopefully because they want to to help people and precision medicine is a tool to to make them better at at that um so it's so what are some ways you mentioned many many different ways patients can get involved but i want to make sure that i give a chance for you to shout out ways that they can get involved specifically like with volunteering with or just getting involved in the various many initiatives you have for ai arthritis I'm laughing because we really do. (laughs) We're like kindred. You have, you and I are kindred spirits. We both have a lot of ambitions of helping. Yeah. The communities. You just just said the word, all of our funders always say, boy, you, your organization is so ambitious. And I was like, true, but we always get it done. So yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you can be ambitious and be a dreamer or you can be ambitious and and a doer and, you're a and, doer yeah yes and and you know it's I may have started this organization but it is nowhere near just me um we did hire our first a first group of employees um this last year because we're doing so much and we need the volunteers and and getting involved in our organization is I think very unique because we always say it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or me or a brand new volunteer, you can get involved as much as you want. Um, if you want to help brainstorm on new innovative projects, come on. I'll invite, I'll teach you how to brainstorm. Like if you want to be part of conferences, while we can't pay for everyone to go, if they ever get back in person, we have a whole virtual online go with us program. Like if you, if we're doing it, it's not, it can never just be our voices, never. It always has to be as many perspectives, experiences, and opinions. So the main way to, to um, kind of get involved and find out about all of these opportunities that involve education or awareness, advocacy, which is public policy or legislation, and research, um, which is always patient-included or patient-led. In our, we have a lot of projects. We as patients have actually mastermind like brain, our brainchild, <laughs> and we use professionals as our advisors rather than the other way around. You can go to AIArthritis.org and you can see all of the work we're doing. You can go to backslash volunteer <laughs> to sign up to volunteer. We're actually um, hoping to recruit at least another 40 or so volunteers from around the world. We are international because we do have so many projects and so many opportunities to connect 
people living with our diseases and other stakeholders. So if there's other um, health professionals that are also listening, we need you at the table too. Um, yeah. So we do, our mission is to connect and have conversations as equals. Um, the other thing is to check out, we have a talk show as well. And that is um, AI Arthritis Voices 360. So wherever you do podcasts, I mean, you can find us. And, you, and if, you know, if you don't do a lot of podcasts, we, we have, it's called 360 because we take it to all of these different platforms. So it has the audio, it, has, it can go to Facebook Live, it can be in person. It's anywhere we can get a perspective or an opinion. And then lastly, on our website, you can, you can click on the homepage to join the AI Arthritis Voices program. That is brand new based on all of the work we've been doing for the last five years on individualized care, making sure voices are, are at the table. It's our mission in action. So if you sign up all stakeholders, all free, <laughs> then you will be notified of any and all opportunity to be able to have your voice um, heard at the table. Um, so that's so the best great. Way. You can also find us at social media with at, at IF AI arthritis on all of our platforms, the IF standing for the International Foundation for mm -hmm. AI arthritis. <laughs> that's so great. And I realized that I did want to take a, uh, to go backwards for one second chronologically. When did, um, your organization get incorporated like as a nonprofit? In um, 2000, well, it was uh, in 2011, we're 10 years old, and okay. it we got the notification in the mail on my 40th birthday. Oh my gosh. I that's... literally was out, and I came home, I opened the mailbox, and I was shaking. Because <gasps> usually it takes like two or three rounds to get everything ticked off. Yep. Yep. I couldn't believe, I, I, I tried to dial the co-founders, and I was shaking so Oh. I couldn't even it took it just really caught me up I always say it was the best birthday gift I ever received um I made a personal choice in my life not to have children and I always mm -hmm. say AR Freitas is my is my child is my baby and how more per it was born on my birthday oh that's just that I can't believe it. I just turned 40 this year so yeah that's a huge that's a oh huge yeah or, on Facebook I saw because I had turned 50 Oh and yeah, you had and I had put a, I don't know, a shirt or something I bought and you oh yes, that in in forty. <laughs> I copied you because yours, yeah, um, and I, yeah, I copied your shirt because it's like uh, founded in nineteen eighty one. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that's that's so great. No, and I think I know that sometimes I've actually had a couple people say to me, "Oh my gosh, you know," because I've had so many patient advocates. Um, I've been lucky to have other patient advocates on the podcast so far, and they're like. I feel so like unaccomplished comparing myself to the people that you've had on your podcast. And I'm like, the goal isn't to like make anyone feel like you're not doing enough. Cause you're not like Tiffany or Mariah, or, you know, the goal is to just take, you know, take the lessons that, that people are sharing, you know, on this podcast. And, um, like in this case, you know, about personalized medicine, about getting involved and, you know, certainly I don't want to make anyone feel, um, you know, bad about themselves. 100%. And, you know, I, and I, I think that's a really good opportunity to just reiterate. If you are one of those, those people and you have the passion to want to do more, I cannot express it enough. If you want to manage projects, if you want to be part of, we, we let you do everything. You can be as involved or and not involved <laughs> as you want. And it's all flexible. So we've set up, we're open 24 seven, 365 days a year. We're all virtual, always have been because we're led by persons living with the diseases. We know we need flexibility time for flaring and, you know, commitment issues on, you know, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to flare. And I think we get a lot of patient people that are existing patient advocates and people who just want to be able to do more because they know we will give them the platform to soar as high as they want. No. And yeah, oftentimes it, when people are feeling so frustrated or so let down by the healthcare system or lack of access to meds, I will say, you know, we all talk about the spoon theory, right? Or the battery charger metaphor. It does cost energy to become involved, but 
to become involved in nonprofits and advocacy, but it also recharges you because it can make you feel more empowered. Like, you know, I've been fortunate to volunteer, you know, with the Arthritis Foundation, going to conferences, speaking as a patient voice. I've also volunteered with the Arthritis American College of Rheumatology as an occupational therapist. So I'm kind of like wearing different hats sometimes, you know, and, you know, and I've gone to Washington, D.C. with the American College of Rheumatology to meet with legislators. And I know that that's an opportunity with your organization too. And it's just, you know, and there's creaky joints. There's a lot of, of nonprofits and everyone is grassroots. You know, everyone is just trying to do, to, to fill, to solve the problems. Like you said, solve all these problems in, in our healthcare system and in our ability to competently manage our condition, you know, the best we can. And then also cope. I do want to also mention RA Guy Foundation is the only nonprofit. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Um, he's the only uh, nonprofit exclusively devoted to the mental health. Um, I don't know if you know him, but um, yeah. uh, to the mental health aspects, which I think is so important and so cl- dear to my heart. So, you know, if, yeah, if it, it's, I don't know if this is like a personality trait, but I used to think that like, oh, you know, like I have to wait until I know everything till I can get involved. Like I was scared and I don't get scared easily talking to people. I'm talkative, you know? So I was scared to go to my state capital with the arthritis foundation the first time, because I was like, well, I don't, I don't remember everything about how the government works. Like, I don't know. Like I forget how a bill gets passed. Like, and they were like, it's all you have to do is share your story, you know? And it's so empowering. So anyway, preaching to the choir here. (laughs) (laughs) But the point being, I think a very important point at that is, is there should be no fear especially when you're working with people like Cheryl or like most people who live with these diseases. I mean, we're, we were all there once. We all did our first ones. And I think we're all kind of in this together and very willing to embrace you and help you. And, and again, be all, all you can be. And it's, it's just do it once. And then it's not scary anymore. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. And um, the only last thing I want to make sure to ask you is one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, whether they're um, a healthcare provider or a person with lived experience, you know, what, what message, and maybe this is already, it's okay if you repeat yourself, but what would you say to somebody who's newly diagnosed, like got diagnosed today, you know, with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis or, or rheumatoid arthritis. So what, what would you, what message would you want to I, say to them? I'm actually going to borrow a quote from Kelly, Kelly Conway, not if you follow, not the Kelly Conway of, no. <laughs> of, of the politics, but <laughs> shares the same name, uh, who is a co-founder of our organization. Uh, I, I love this quote. And she says, Um, being diagnosed with an AR arthritis disease isn't the end of the world. It's another way of living in it. And I just love that because yes, there is going to be, uh, you're going to have to alter certain things. It is a pretty constant juggle of scheduling and trying to figure out flares. Uh, But just remember, it's just finding the other way of living it's it, and we're all here to help. <laughs> I so love it. You're not alone. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. And I know, thank you for clarifying. Cause yeah, I know of course our Kelly Conway, the one in our community of rheumatic disease people, but, um, I forgot that there's the other Kelly. Conway. There is. And, and, um, and they even share the same middle name. It is Kelly Ann Conway. No <laughs> so way. It is. So well, she was not real, real thrilled oh, about having dear. to share, share names. Um, you know, but yeah, so just to clarify for those who, who have been in po- following politics the last couple of years, not the same person that is not a co-founder of our No, no, no. And so I am going to include, you know, all the links as again, as Tiffany said on social media, she's at IFAI arthritis, um, on all the major, uh, social media platforms. And then I'll also link to the website, but I have a lot of other websites like the ULAR and the Spondylitis Association of America that I've been taking notes on as we've talked. So I'll be sure to mention those too, but thank you so much. I know you're very, very busy with all your different initiatives and managing your own care. So thank you so much for coming on the Arthritis Life podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It was fantastic. I had a great time. Yay. Okay. Bye-bye for now. Bye.
All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a membership and support community where you'll learn how to develop your own Thrive toolbox so you can live a full life despite your rheumatic disease or chronic illness. Learn more in the show notes or by going to www.myarthritislife.net. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes.